On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the LRT because it is somehow back in front of City Council again. And why is it back in front of City Council? Because it's not back in front of City Council. Confused? Stick around. We will unconfuse you. We're also going to be talking about the federal budget that is coming up. A report is out suggesting some ways to really help the Canadian economy. What are those? Will the federal liberals listen? It's like the Batman show. Stick around. Same bad time as before. We'll do that as well. And we're going to talk Masters. Augusta National, the Masters opened up on Thursday. We'll talk about that course, that tournament, and a local guy who's playing really well right now. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We're talking about LRT, of course, and it does seem like a lot of nights have seemed the same. This is the topic that does not want to seem to go away. But once again, back on the docket at City Hall, largely because it seems anyway, there was a staff report that, well, that that brought it back, but also discussions, and we'll get to all this stuff, and also discussions seemingly going on with the federal government and the provincial government and some private groups, but missing seemingly in that discussion about what to do with the LRT now, Hamilton City Council, which you would think would be relevant in this discussion. John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Counselor for Hamilton, joins us right now. John Paul, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Well, thrilled to. Um, th- this is the topic that doesn't go away. And some people might say, Hamilton Council has talked about this enough. So let's let the other people talk about this. But honestly, how is Hamilton Council kind of being cut out of these discussions? It does seem ridiculous. You know, this reminds me of you know, maybe the fifth or sixth season of your favorite TV show where the first few seasons are really invested in it and you're, you know, excited about the character development. And then a little bit long after that, it kind of gets a little the same. And then by like kind of the fifth and sixth season, they start introducing new characters and you kind of lose the plot. And then eventually the, the show just kind of jumps the shark. <laughs> so, so when is Hamilton city council having its wedding episode then? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. You know, all those uh, relationships uh, that have been developed through the rest, and you're like, come on, just will they, won't they? I don't know. Um, But it feels like we're kind of at that point in the discussion where, um, you know, there's there's new characters and there's a new plot line, and we don't really know what's going to happen. And in, in terms of Hamilton City Council's involvement, uh, I don't think it should be any surprise for anybody that the, the province um, is deliberately kind of sidelining uh, Hamilton City Council because I think we saw last year um, when Minister Mulrooney came to town to cancel the project, you know, at the time she was influenced by those who had her ear to cancel LRT, that it wasn't in the best interests of Hamilton. And I think that did not work out so well for the minister and for the provincial government. And I I think that they're very uh, reluctant to make that same error again. So I fully expect that the provincial government is going to work with the federal government and any third-party um, financing partners and come back to Hamilton Council only when they have a fully developed um, plan that's financed, that is defined, and it's going to be kind of a take-it-or-leave-it scenario. Um, for very good reason, I don't think they have any interest in getting into the weeds in an LRT debate in Hamilton. 
Well, and part of this new discussion, to, to that point, some of this new discussion seems to arrive out of the staff report I alluded to in the introduction here that says the LRT might get captured up in something called the Building Transit Faster Act, which, as I understand it, and you can correct me because you would know this way better than me, this would kind of allow upper levels of government the freedom to bypass local zoning and expropriation rules, which would, that to me sounds kind of scary. Even if we like the LRT or don't like the LRT, when you now have the city not having control over its own city, that's a little frightening. Yeah, I'm not sure how much the Building Transit Faster Act would really apply to Hamilton because a lot of the things that it aims to fast track, we've already done on the Beeline Corridor anyway. So things like expropriation, things like um, investigations, um, underground investigations of utilities and and soils and things like that in the right-of-way, we've already done all that work. So um, in terms of Hamilton, I think it just sort of formalizes the Hamilton LRT as a priority for the province. But um, overall, what the impact that will have to Hamilton, I'm not sure it's, it's really that big of a difference from the work that we've already done. Uh, a couple exceptions being things like utility relocations that involve third parties like uh, Bell and Rogers and Enbridge. Um, those things can be very time-consuming in a construction project, and, and it aims to sort of simplify the process for that. But overall, you know, I think it's it's a it's a bit of a Seinfeld episode here. It's a, it's a lot of uh, a lot of um, discussion about you know not really anything that that impacts Hamilton that much. Okay. Um- and again, let's keep this going because there was one of the other really intriguing things that I thought from council uh, in the meeting where this came up was what it, it seems anyway. And and once again, I'll ask you to correct me if I'm misreading this, but it seems there might be some softening of some positions around council or rethinking or reconsidering. Um, you mentioned what, what something you said was the A line, the BRT, uh, that would be intriguing. So when we start looking at this again, are there positions you think that are softening or have those positions always been there? Well, so I, I was a LRT supporter based on the project that was on the table, uh, which is LRT from McMaster to Centennial. Now, at this point, we don't actually know what's going to be on the table. So I don't have a position one way or the other because I don't actually know what is going to be proposed. I would still like to see some sort of LRT or rapid transit on the B-Line as a priority. I think if we don't move forward on that corridor, there's some very significant problems that we're going to be facing as a city, such as all the boarded up properties along the King Street corridor. I mean, we're going to have to deal with that one way or the other, and it's going to involve city investment. Um, You know, we've got the six-lane highway on Main Street um, one way that sooner or later we're going to have to deal with that and, and convert that to two-way. There's the you know, never-ending uh, debate over area rating for transit. And, you know, for example, if we were to end area rating for transit and make all residents of Hamilton pay for transit equally, the taxpayers in wards one to eight would get about a 3% tax cut off of their annual tax bill. And the, uh, the residents in those other areas would see about a 3% tax increase. And, you know, there's there's eight votes there plus the mayor. So we have the votes to do that if we wanted to. But I think we want to work in a collaborative way and, uh, you know, work on projects that are beneficial to the city as a whole. But that's an outstanding issue for, uh, you know, for the taxpayers that I represent. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about some of the options here and you were going through some of the 
the things that potentially could be on the table and the pros and some of the cons. Is it too late? And the only reason I ask that, of course, it's not too late in the technical sense, although there have been all the expropriations and all the money gone into it. But it just seems that at this point, so many people in so many segments of the city are so dug in on their positions that it seems that if we were to undo something now, you're almost going to cause a, a you know a riot. Not really, but you know what I mean. I mean, people are going to lose their minds if we suddenly say, let's rethink this. Yeah, I think we need to, you know, unentrench from those positions and, and really take a, a big picture look at is what is in the best interest of the city Hamilton and, and the taxpayers of the city Hamilton as a whole. And that may not be particularly what's in the best interest of each councillor's ward. And uh, before the break, you mentioned the A-line on Upper James and, and that being part of the discussion for bus rapid transit. And as the councillor that represents uh, Ward 8 and the majority of Upper James, that's something that I'm really interested in. But it would also mean some pretty big changes in terms of closing James Mountain Road to be transit only, taking two lanes off of Upper James to be transit only. And are we even ready for rapid transit on the, on the mountain? Um, one of the things that I've been working on with staff over the last couple of years is starting to build up transit capacity on Upper James by using priority signals and uh, eventually moving towards maybe um, uh, transit priority at uh, at intersections and a bus lane, perhaps. But, you know, that that's there's sort of a progression that you have to go to build the capacity and the ridership before you just jump into rapid transit. And uh, the other kind of big picture thing that we're looking at as a city right now is our growth projections uh, to 2051. So we're in a, underway right now with a really massive um, uh, project to determine how our city is going to grow, where the urban boundary is going to be uh, for the next 30 years. It's probably the single biggest, most important decision uh, this council is ever going to make. And right now we're projecting 60% uh, infill density. So where is that infill going to go? Well, it's going to go along the transit corridors, and a big part of that was the B-Line LRT, which is, you know, one of the main reasons why it was uh, advanced in the first place. Mm. And then you have, you know, councillors that represent the rural wards where there's a, quite a bit of prime agricultural farmland. And, and we've heard just recently from uh, farming um, associations and farmers how important it is to, to preserve that agricultural land well, you preserve the agricultural land by building infill along your transit corridors, which, you know, is LRT. So, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. So there, there's some pretty big decisions that, mm -hmm. that we're facing as a city that all these things are intertwined. Is, is there a solution here? I may, I'm asking you to be King Solomon at this point, which is probably, I mean, maybe you are, I don't know. But I mean, it, it's a pretty lofty piece of wisdom I'm asking for. But is there a solution that can make everybody happy or is this bound to end up with people being unhappy and some people maybe being happy or who knows oh boy yeah that's that's a tough question to answer uh I, again i think it comes down to trying to um not perhaps consider what's best for my particular area my ward what's best for me personally and trying to really have an open mind to, to what is the best solution for the city Hamilton. And like I said uh, at the beginning, I don't know what that is at this point. Um, I'm trying to keep an open mind and really see what it is that the province and the federal government comes back to us with. Because the one thing that I do know 
is that we were approved for $3.7 billion investment in the city Hamilton and provincial tax dollars. That's now been cut to a billion. So that means that that $2.7 billion uh, difference is taxpayers of the city of Hamilton that are funding rapid transit projects in Toronto and Mississauga and Brampton. And I would rather see that money invested in our city. And I think as a council, we need to all work together to make sure that we maximize that provincial investment in the city of Hamilton. Let me just say this, I got to let you go. But uh, first of all, I congratulate you for something you just said, because I think it, we don't hear it enough. And that is it, that not just looking out for what's best in my ward, we need a lot more of that. So good for you for saying that. That's something that we should be hearing, as I say, a lot more of, not fiefdom thinking, but big city thinking. So that's that's excellent. Um, and second thing, an, an idea to take back to council was what I misspoke earlier. Maybe bus rabbit transit would be something that would, you know, lighten it and make it more interesting for people. I don't know. Well, sure make Easter a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Counselor for Hamilton. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Take care, Scott. We'll take a break. Hey, and by the way, I, I, I mean what I just said to John Paul. We need more counselors more of the time talking about big picture issues and big picture decisions that are not just based on the what's good for their ward. I, I really applaud that. Now, we all have to, all the counselors have to follow that up when they say that, but I really applaud that kind of thinking. That is exactly what we should be hearing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So you probably remember that there is a budget, a federal budget that's coming up in the next few days. And what we've heard what we've been told by the government, by Christia Freeland herself, the finance minister, is that this is going to include a lot more spending, a lot more spending, as in another $100 billion at least in stimulus and other stuff, a lot more spending. Well, not everybody is in agreement with that strategy. In fact, if you read and listen, there are many people who say, wait a second, let's let's just pump the brakes here for a second Yes, we're in COVID, but let's not completely lose our minds. Let's let's think through what really should be done here. Let me bring in one of those people who has expressed some concern about that and warned that Canada is going to be facing a bleak outlook if the government, if the federal government isn't ready to show some control, perhaps is the way to say it. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, who he wrote the report that talked about this. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this, Bill. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks. Pleasure to be here. You, uh, in this report, um, you have written, and it came out just, I think, this week, that among other things, the $100 billion in stimulus spending that the government has promised is going to come out should not happen, that the lofty spending plans on social issues and stuff should be put aside, and the GST should be raised, which I find really interesting. Let's go through a few of these, starting with the $100 billion. Why would that not help boost the economy that seems to be struggling right now? Well, the idea of the stimulus program is to support demand, uh, and that's the sort of thing that you often see if the economy has been through kind of a classic slump. Uh, What we've just been through this time, I wish we were through it, uh, uh, but uh, by the fall anyway, uh, we have reason to think that we'll be in much better shape with vaccines and so on. And at that point, uh, there's just all this money that people already have as a result of the, the transfers that the government made last year. And as the economy reopens, uh, I'm in the camp that thinks there's going to be quite a, a snapback of spending. 
Uh, and at that point, it's hard to think about the things that the, the federal government could really spend $100 billion on. One thing I'll say about that commitment was uh, it just shows kind of the level of unreality in Ottawa right now that uh, when they penciled that in, they never even bothered to uh, uh, put in any interest payments. So it's not even just that they're not planning on um, uh, paying any of this money down at some point. Uh, they're they're not even they're 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 just in this fantasy world where you can borrow another hundred billion and it doesn't even mean you got to pay another dollar of interest. So there's an element of unreality about this that I think, you know, if Christopher Freeland, you know, if she were, if she were finance minister still five years from now, uh, she would look back and she would bitterly reproach her former self for not uh, Hmm. setting the table better for the future. Well, and when you talk about fantasy, one of the other things about when you talk about a hundred billion dollars, I think we forget what a staggering sum of money that is because maybe because we've been numbed to it over the last year or so, but that's a lot of money. Well, it is a lot of money. You you mentioned the fact that we recommend a GST increase. I'm not expecting to see that uh, in in the federal budget. Uh, It'd be politically very hard to do, but uh, here's the weird thing about, about that. Uh, you put the GST back up to the 7% federal rate that it was at before it got cut. Um, and we're saying that's going to yield about $20 billion a year in revenue. That's a two percentage point increase in the GST. That would be a big deal for people, and there'd be a lot of unhappiness. Um, but as you just said yourself, $100 billion, so that's five times that amount. Now, we don't know what they're going to be committing to on an ongoing basis, but we've heard a lot of very expansive talk about uh, new programs in, say, pharmacare, daycare. A lot of people are pressing for uh, universal basic income. Uh, A lot of those things are sort of attractive ideas, but you've got to make room for them somewhere uh, because the, the, the size of GST increase that you'd be looking at to pay for all that stuff on an ongoing basis is way more than what we've said. And a lot of people are looking at what we said and said, seriously? you're recommending that so you know it it, but it puts the money in perspective there are two schools of thought i think maybe there's probably more than two but there's two schools of thought on this hundred billion dollars one is well we're never going to either really have to pay it back or um the the stimulus is that the benefit to the economy is going to be so great that it would override anything else the flip side is we're flushing billions of dollars a year in interest payments down the toilet that could go to other real infrastructure projects or social project programs or whatever else, which is the real answer there? I mean, is the benefit, if, if we did a national pharmacare or a universal basic income, does that override the amount that we're going to have to pay to service this debt or vice versa? Well, one way of thinking about it, you've touched on both the growth side and the interest rate side. And the at the moment, uh, the government is is counting on, and we're likely to see it for the next uh, few months at any rate, uh, you know, over the next year or so, a growth rate that's that's quite fast and interest rates that are quite low. And if that's the situation that you face for a long period of time, then you can do a lot of borrowing, and the tax base is going to grow faster than your interest is going to compound, and so you can continue to run deficits. Um, there are two things to say about that. One is, Uh, Yeah, that's where we are now, and we've been in that sort of a situation in the past, and we've also been in the opposite situation. We've been in situations where interest rates were higher than growth rates, and all of a sudden, the debt load that looked manageable uh, and and the interest payments that didn't seem to be crowding out a lot of programs or forcing you to raise taxes, uh, all of that turns around, and uh, we know how painful that can be. Uh, 
Uh, I would really like to see the government looking ahead a bit, um, as in fact the previous federal government did after the financial crisis of 2008 uh, and the slump of 2009, uh, because what they did was they got the budget back into balance. And then when the next thing came along, uh, we were in good shape to deal with it. And I think, you know, a forward looking fiscal policy you really have to be re- ready for whatever it is that, that comes along next. And the, the, I'll just elaborate, if you don't mind, on, on interest rates. Interest rates will likely stay low if governments stop borrowing so much. But if they're all giving the impression as ours and uh, the U.S. now in the same place, uh, is 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 just saying, well, we're just going to keep borrowing at this rate uh, indefinitely. Well, at some point, interest rates are bound to go up because people just get nervous about that. And also, if you're counting on growth to bail you out, well, let's see some things in the in the federal budget that are really going to help us grow over the long term because we haven't seen a lot of that lately in federal budgets. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Bill Robson, the CEO of the CD Howe Institute, about a report that he has written outlining some things that maybe the federal liberal government might want to consider before delivering its budget in the next few days. Among those things, two that really stand out, there are a lot more. It's it's a much more in-depth report than we have time for today, but two that really stand out. One is dump the promised $100 billion stimulus investment because we don't really need it and because we're already wallowing in debt. And the other is raise the GST which, Bill, I think that may have been the thing that caught me more by surprise than even dumping the $100 million, just because few people are brave enough to say that we should be raising taxes without having people with pitchforks and torches standing at their door. Why would raising the GST be a good idea now? Well, it's a very uh, tough sell, and um, I'm aware that I'm not the finance minister putting it forward. Um, One thing I should mention is that we've got this uh, proposal for a couple of years time. I think that if you were to hit the economy with a GST increase right now, uh, you wouldn't like the results because people are just uh, sort of staggering along and, and doing their best to recover uh, from from COVID. But the, the reason for putting that in the shop window like that is to underline an, an important point. And it goes back to something that you had said earlier about some of the other programs that uh, are 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 likely to feature in the budget. Certainly, they feature in the speech from the throne, and that would be some of the things like pharmacare and uh, and daycare. Um, if we want programs like that, uh, they're not going to be one-offs. They're going to be ongoing commitments. And at the moment, with the federal government borrowing more than half of the program, you know, it's, it's borrowing is so big that we're effectively getting uh, everything for half price. Uh, they're, they're they're actually raising in taxes only about fifty cents per dollar they're spending on programs. Well, at half price, a lot of things look attractive that you would never be willing to pay full price for. And so, if you're if you're seriously going to put a whole lot of new programs in place, if you're seriously going to spend all this other money that they're talking about greening the economy and so on, uh, you got to be upfront with people. You can't pretend that you're going to be able to finance this all with debt forever because it's not going to be possible. You got to be uh, up upfront with them about the fact that it's going to cost. So for us. Putting the GST increase was there it was in there. It's only twenty billion a year. That's pretty small compared to some of the things they're promising. But that was a way of saying if you want these programs and you want them on an ongoing basis, you have to pay for them, and that's one way you could do it. And it's and your point is well made. Here's the the blip, or maybe I don't know the catch on this one. People 
are fine with tax increases. I think I get the sense people are fine with tax increases as long as they are tax increases on the rich, you know, the, whoever the rich are, but the super rich, we can tax the crap out of them. We don't care. But the GST would affect everybody, whether you're high income, low income, you buy something, you're going to pay the GST. That seems to me to be a harder sell than coming out and saying, if you make a hundred million dollars a year, we're going to tax you at 50% or 70% or whatever. Well, it's true. People would prefer that somebody else pay taxes, but always some of the taxes that are popular, uh, at least uh, you know among people who are big on redistribution, are actually not going to raise all that much revenue. You hear a lot of of talk maybe that we should increase the capital gains tax rate, or that there might be taxes on principal residences, or that we might have a wealth tax. The problem with those taxes is you're just not going to raise all that much money. I mean, whatever you think of the merits of it, uh, I, I kind of like taxes that don't drive talent out of the country, but there are different views on that. In terms of dollars, though, you're just not going to raise the same kind of money with some of those taxes as you would with a GST. And I'll just repeat what I said earlier. These, you know, these are broad-based programs. These are programs that you really need a lot of money for. You need a very robust tax base. And so I, I kind of like the idea of saying to people, fine. So, but like in cities, you know, who, who likes paying property tax? Nobody likes paying property tax. It's a very in-your-face tax. But another way of looking at it is, is to say, well, you know, it's actually not a bad thing that it's in your face because everybody's kind of got skin in the game when it comes to municipal services and we all pay pretty close attention to that so the gst is ugly but sometimes ugly is good by the way what was your proposal for the gst because i don't think it was like a crazy high amount we're not going up to 30 percent or something under your proposal well no it's not we said two points which would put it back to where it was before it got cut in the uh, Seven, early 2000s so, yeah. uh, that raises 20 billion a year of revenue so it's about 10 billion per point and when you're thinking about the various proposals that are out there for, uh, you know, some really big ticket programs, it's not a bad idea just to translate it into points of GST and then look again and say, nah, do I, do I really like it as much as I thought I did? I think it's a, you know, that is a brilliant idea that every time we want to say, okay, you want universal pharmacare? All right, that's going to be an extra five points on your GST. I, I think a lot of people, their positions might change if that was the case, but um but, you know, we can always go back to the tax someone else because they deserve to be taxed more than I do. Uh, Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank, thanks, Scott. That is, a, uh, that is a wise position, I think. That would be a very interesting position, too, if you were going to take that to the people. All right. We will give you all the things that you want. You want pharmacare. You want universal basic income. You want this, this, and this. That's fine. But everybody is going to pay percentage points on your GST to cover this. Now, what do you really, really want? I think the discussion in a lot of those things might end up being very, very different. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today, there were probably a lot of people calling in sick to work or finding a TV if they were at home near their desk or moving a TV into the office or whatever else because the Masters began today and the Masters is that golf tournament that even if you are not a diehard golf fan, yeah, you might tune into, you might watch diehards. I mean, diehards lose it for this. It's the, it is the tournament, but even if you're just sort of a casual fan, the Masters just has this aura, whether it's the beauty of the course, Augusta National Course, or whether it's the sort of the beginning of spring that it signifies, or whether it's the fact that Mike Weir, a Canadian, won it once upon a time, or Tiger Woods has won it a bunch, whatever. 
The Masters began. Everybody is now tuning there. And we got some good news. We're going to get to it in a second about Mackenzie Hughes, the guy from Hamilton, the golfer from Hamilton. But first, let me bring in Jason Logan. He is the editor of Score Golf Magazine. Joins us now. Jason, how are you today? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Did you get any work done today or was it entirely Masters watching? Well, a little bit of both. I'm uh, I'm chatting on the phone with you, and I'm writing a column on the Masters. And as usually happens when you uh, cover a golf term on Thursday and Friday, you're just kind of waiting for these last scores to trickle in so you can fill in some question marks on your copy before you file. So that's what I'm doing now. So this is good timing. Good timing. There are... Well, and there are right now many people listening saying, wait a second, how do I get a job as editor of a golf magazine where my job requires me to watch golf all day? I want that job. <laughs> yeah, well, you, uh, you, you also need, especially in this work from home uh, environment that we're in, you need a wife that's uh, okay to look after the two screaming <laughs> kids <laughs> post dinner hour here as, this, uh, as the play uh, dwindles down here on the, uh, this evening. That, uh, yes, that would help. Uh, or, or you become that uh, that BBC interview uh, from North Korea from a few years back when they all burst into the office on uh, on TV. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's okay too. We'll, we'll take the entertainment value for that. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the things coming into this week was the concern that many of the players, because they've bulked up, they're stronger, they're more athletic, they've got better equipment, the sun has been out. The course is hard. There was a lot of concern that a lot of these players were going to absolutely tear Augusta apart. Now we've heard this before, but now you've got DeChambeau who is, you know, the incredible Hulk and all these, and it's not happened today. Was it, is it surprising to you that with all that talk going into this, that the course has not only held up, I mean, it's really embarrassed a few of many of the best golfers in the world today. Yeah, yeah, and I was just actually writing my column about some of the big names that have struggled, and you know, Rory McIlroy once again, who's who's normally a betting favorite favorite at this tournament, despite not having every one, goes out and and shoots seventy six on day one. I'm not surprised because the golf course is so firm and so fast today. Um, whether or not it gets a little bit softer as rain is forecasted. We're not sure. They've got that sub-air system there at Augusta National where they can suck the moistures right out of the greens. But when greens are firm and fast and shiny, players like to use the term shiny, when when golf courses are are this firm, it becomes very difficult for them to control the golf ball. So it doesn't really matter how long a golf course is these days. If it's soft, these guys can do whatever they want with the ball. They're, they're just which, that good. Which we saw in you know, November. Absolutely. And that, and that's the biggest difference between a Masters in November, uh, given the turf conditions, given the overseed not being able to set in, to a Masters in April. And, you know, if you, if you watched Chairman Fred Ridley's press conference ahead of time, He's been a member at the club for 20 years, and he said, this week is the best shape I've ever seen Augusta in in my 20 years here as far as having a course that's firm and fast. Now, again, that might change if the weather comes as it's expected. But, you know, what I love about Augusta is there's, you know, we always talk about, especially when the U.S. Open rolls around, we talk about, oh, you got to grow the rough up to five or four or five inches. Like, you got to make it so hard for these guys if they miss a fairway. Well, these guys are so strong, and Bryson DeChambeau proved that last year, that if they do hit it into the rough, they can muscle short irons and wedges out onto the green uh, with ease. What you need is a golf course that allows errant shots to run into real trouble. 
And they do have rough at Augusta, but it's not near what it is at a U.S. Open or uh, earlier this year, like we saw at the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Balls can skip into the trees, they can skip into water, they can skip into the pine straw, and then it becomes extremely difficult for these players to position the ball on greens that are that slopey and that fast. So I really like that Augusta's playing tough. I want to see it continue to play that way because I think it's a better test than a slog like Wingfoot where it's just about how far you hit it and how strong you are from that deep grass. So you prefer watching because different people have different preferences. Some loved the fact that Dustin Johnson won the masters in November with a record 20 under par score. Others say, no, no, I want to see it so that, you know, a guy is going to really scramble to break par and win the tournament that way. You like it when it's harder rather than just seeing them run the numbers up. Well, not necessarily. I don't necessarily like to see or the guys struggle. What I like to see is a golf course play the meant it was the, the way it was meant and the way it was designed. And that's the way Augusta was meant to be played all those years ago, long before they lengthened it, long before they added trees, long before they added the second cut. It was kind of meant to be an inland links golf where the ball runs and runs, and, and you've got to be really creative around the greens, and you've got to be creative with your shots into the greens. And the great thing about Augusta is, even when it's playing fast and firm like this, it still has those really gettable holes on the back nine that add a lot of excitement to the tournament. 13 is obviously a reachable par five. 15 is a reachable par five. The traditional Sunday pin on 16 allows balls to catch the slope and roll down towards the pin. Um, You know, 12 is wild. It's my favorite hole in golf because anything can happen there with the wind. But, and we saw that in 2019 when Francesco Molinari and Brooks Kepka and Tony all hit balls in the water and Tiger Woods didn't. So, even when Augusta's playing firm and fast, there's those holes that we all know about on the back nine where a player could make a birdie or an eagle and really, really flip the script. Do you think that the green jackets, and I'm not talking about the winners, I'm talking about if you ever go, for anyone listening, if you go down to Augusta, it's not just the winners of the tournament that wear the green jackets, that's members. And they walk around the course, the members are there and you can see them. And one thing I found very funny, Jason, by the way, um, there was a guy, I went down there a few years ago, and there was a guy who bought a green jacket at a thrift store and tried to wear it onto the course. They really frown upon that, just in case you're wondering. Yeah. But the yeah. green jackets at Augusta, do you think they were embarrassed by how easily some of the players, especially Dustin Johnson, handled it in November? They really wanted it to be tougher? Yes. Um, now, they won't say it, but certainly I don't think they enjoyed the fact that somebody got to 20 under par on their golf course. Although... I think they weren't necessarily surprised by it. I mean, you know, to its credit, Augusta National was able to contest the Masters last year. You know, they moved it back to November, and November is a time of year where that golf course is normally not in tournament conditions, and and they worked extremely hard to get it ready, to get it presentable. And if you remember, you know, in the the era of high-definition televisions, you could really see that Augusta was not in particularly great shape last year and I talked to uh, Corey Connors um, a couple weeks ago and he said the same thing you know it was a little bit different Um, you know there was a lot of mud kicking up Uh, it just it didn't look Augusta-ish and you know as a result the guys really picked it apart Um, so I think they are you know I think they they got the weather and they got the conditions over the last month to have the golf course firm and fast and I think certainly they would like to see it be a tougher test than it was 
in November. So I think they're, well, they're just about wrapped for the day, but right now, and there could be some changes on the, on the leaderboard, but right now tied for 13th place is Mackenzie Hughes, who obviously around here, huge interest in him, Dundas guy who is um, in his second masters now. And what do you think is a good result for Mackenzie? Cause this is a guy that when he has played at his best, you know, he's got, he's won a tournament. He's won, he got a couple seconds. He's got some thirds. He has shown he can compete with anyone when he's not played at his best. He's missed a bunch of cuts. What's a reasonable or a good expectation for him this week? Um, you know, I would say that, you know, I'm sure he's going there and he, and he believes he can win. And why wouldn't you? I would say a, a reasonable expectation given the progression that we normally see at this tournament is probably something like a top 25 finish. Um, you know, his first time around in 2017, uh, I think he posted two pretty big numbers and was sent home packing. So obviously he wants to make the cut and obviously he wants to have a decent finish. You know, there's there's a cutoff point at the Masters. You know, you eye a top 12 finish. That means you get to come back the next year, which, you know, is a, I think is a really good target for somebody on Sunday who's not necessarily going to win, but is kind of hovering around that 15 to 20 range. So that's a target. But I think for Mackenzie, you know, only being his second trip here and, and only having played two competitive rounds in 2017, I think if he finished in the top 25 or top 20 on Sunday, he'd be pleased with that. Um, but again, I think he, he, you know, he would say that if he got into that position, he'd start really eyeing that top 12 finish to make sure he gets back in, in 2022. Let me go back to something I said when I brought you in here, which was the fact that the Masters, for whatever reason, is that event that even if you're not necessarily a diehard, you will watch. And and sometimes you would point to, well, Tiger Woods is always there and he always does well and Tiger Woods is a huge draw. There's no Tiger Woods this year because of his car accident. And yet I still expect the, the, the ratings to be very, very high for this. Why do you think the Masters resonates with so many people? It's the only men's major championship that's played on the same golf course every year. And it's, it's, and because of that, it's probably the most famous golf course in the world. And, you know, I agree with your, what you said off the top about the time of year. It, it sort of starts feeling like golf season around here, at least in Southern Ontario, when the Masters rolls around. But to me, it, it's the familiarity of the golf course that fans have. We, we know every hole. If, you, if you've watched the Masters for however many years, 10, 15, 20 years, you know every hole, you almost know every pin position. And no other major is like that. Yes, the U.S. Open is, is played often at Pebble Beach, and we're familiar with Pebble. And yes, the Open Championship is played at St. Andrews every five years. But this course is so distinct, and this course has evoked so much passion in people and has brought forth so many great moments, you know, from Jack Nicklaus in 86, Tiger in 97 to Tiger in 2019 to Tiger in 2005, that famous chip in. Um, we just know this place so well and we know what to expect and we kind of know the ebbs and flows. I mean, if you're watching on Sunday and somebody that you're cheering for bogeys 11, you kind of think, well, he's got 13 and 15. So if he makes two birdies there because those holes are gettable and then he does something good on 16 because of the pin position, I mean, we just know it so well. And so I think it's, I think that's primarily the reason that we love this tournament so much. Um, Cause even if you've never been there, it sort of feels like you've been there before. 
But one of the things that the Masters allows for and encourages is for former champions to come back and play, and there are a bunch of them in the field. Most of them right at the bottom of the scoreboard, Larry Mize and Vijay Singh and Sandy Lyle and Mike Weir. Is it a good thing that they allow all the former champions to come back and play into forever, or does it kind of, I don't know, take something away that they're taking up spots in the field with those guys? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it's a limited field to begin with. So they're not the way that the Augusta National sets up this tournament. They're not really taking spots away per se. Um, they're those that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they have those spots until they kind of decide that they're no longer physically capable of playing or, or we've seen in the past. And I don't think it happens anymore where Augusta National would would actually at one time send a letter to some of these past champions and say, maybe you should only come for the dinner on Tuesday and not bring your golf clubs. Um, but I like it. And what I like about it is, you know, I actually wrote about this week for Toronto star. What I like about it is that every year, it seems there's one of these past champions into their fifties and sometimes even into their sixties who go around there and put together some pretty decent rounds. I mean, we've seen a number of past champions actually contend uh, for a green jacket into their, into their fifties. Jack Nicholas in 1998 at 58 years old was two shots back of the lead late on Sunday and wound up finishing, I think tied for six. Bernard longer has finished in the top 10 um, into his fifties. Fred couples for many years seemed like he was always in one of the final couple groups in his late forties and early fifties. And even a guy like Larry Mize, who is at the bottom of the leaderboard this year, uh, went out last year and shot two under 70 in the first round. And I just think what that proves and kind of hits home again and again, is that you really need to know what you're doing at Augusta national to be successful. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's very, I mean, Fuzzy Zeller won as a rookie in 1979, and Jordan Spieth almost did in his first year, and then came back and won. Um, I think that was 15 and 16 or 14 and 15, I can't remember. But other than that, you really need to get there and, and figure out what you're doing. And I like when they have these past champions go out there. And, you know, I think I think Longer had a pretty good round today, and I think Olafable had it going for a while. And, and I think it's kind of neat to see those guys get to go and play every year and, and kind of show the young guys that, that they still know how to get it around Augusta. Well, and you talked about the history and why the course intrigues people because it's the same every year. And you know what? I mean, I, I guess the old champions, the former, not all old, but the former champions, uh, there are a bit of living history on the course as well. You go out and watch, you know, Larry Mize and imagine when he's playing on, was it 11 or on 12 when he hit that chip the, against Greg Norman? But, you know, you can, you yeah, can picture 11, him trying to do that again. Yep. Yeah, well, and, and the other thing, the other thing it allows, and we've seen this many times with Fred Couples, it is allows these guys who, you know, we think of as contenders, guys in their twenties and thirties, to get there and play a practice round with some of these guys because they're in tournaments and pick their brain. I mean, John Rahm in uh, last year, you know, he played both his practice rounds with Olaf Abel. Olaf Abel obviously being a country mate of his, and you know, he saw them in the short game area, Olaf Abel teaching him how to play certain shots around Augusta, Olaf Abel being a two-time champion and one of the best short games of all time. So, you know, I like that those guys are there. Obviously, those, those old guys are there because they like to compete and they like to play Augusta and they, and they want to put forth a good effort, but they're also passing on a lot of knowledge to the next generation. I think it's really neat every year. Jason Logan, editor of Score Golf Magazine, wrote a great piece about the 12th hole. You can go find it at Score Golf. What's the website? Score Golf K? 
Canada. Scoregolf.com, you tell me. Yeah. Scoregolf.com, yeah, much easier than I was going to come up with. Uh, go read it there. Jason, always appreciate the heavy help. Thanks for doing this. Okay, so long. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.